everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. I'm your host, Celine Chenoy. Thank you to all of you who return every week to tune in to become a better version of yourself. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and rate our show if you enjoyed this episode. What would it mean to discover that you're designed to live an extraordinary life of self-healing, longevity, and deep intuition? Is it possible that the advanced awareness achieved by monks, nuns, and mystics is actually meant to be a regular part of your daily life? According to my guest, Greg Braden, it certainly can be. Based on his studies, explorations, and travels, Greg believes that we can achieve incredible feats and transform our lives if we tap into our natural innate power. Today, he will share some of his wisdom with us. Greg Braden is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, international educator, and renowned as a pioneer in the emerging paradigm based in science, social policy, and human potential. He has presented his discoveries in over 30 countries on six continents and has been invited to speak to the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, and the U.S. military. Greg is the proud recipient of numerous awards, including the Walden Award for New Thought, the Illuminate Award for Conscious Visionaries, and he is listed in the United Kingdom's Watkins Journal among the top 100 of the world's most spiritually influential living people for the seventh consecutive year. To date, his research has led to 15 film credits and 12 award-winning books now published in over 40 languages. During our conversation, Greg will offer insight into connecting with our deeper abilities using our thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and focus to succeed and overcome obstacles. He also shares the knowledge he gained from spiritual traditions around the world that can help us achieve an empowered state of being and feel more connected to our global family. Hello, Greg. How are you doing today? I am doing beyond awesome today. I'm coming to you from a a little studio outside of the uh, high desert Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, It's cold outside, but it's very sunny, cool, thin air. I'm happy to be with you in our community today, Celine. Oh, yeah. I am so delighted to have you on our show, Greg. I mean, I am such a big fan of your work and everything that you stand for. Actually, I was telling Greg earlier before we started recording that I had the pleasure of seeing you speak live at uh, the I Can Do It conference at Phoenix, Arizona. And I absolutely loved your talk. So I am so looking forward to our discussion here today and sharing your wisdom with our with our community of listeners. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I uh, this is completely unscripted. We have no idea where it's going. It's It's a dance. I'm happy for yes, the lady to, to lead this dance and I'll, I'll just follow wherever we go. So uh, nothing's, nothing's off the table for this conversation. All right. Thanks, Greg. So I want to start by talking a little bit about your personal journey and your story. I mean, it has greatly influenced your mission in the world. And um, 
you describe yourself as a product of a dysfunctional family and a survivor of childhood trauma. And you also grew up in a conservative part of the United States. So, Greg, how has your background informed the work that you do today, specifically when it comes to self-empowerment and exploring human potential? So we're going to do the easy questions first, right? Absolutely. We want to get to know you first. <laughs> you know, well, I say that because it's always the, the hardest thing for, for a speaker to do is talk about themselves. Oh, it's much okay. easier to talk to talk about the discoveries, but but I'm happy to do that. You know, I uh, I I was raised in uh in a conservative part of the United States in the Midwest, a state that is called Missouri for our our viewers that are not not living here in America. It's a rural community. Uh my family was very dysfunctional. It was an alcoholic family. My father was the alcoholic, he was the abuser. Uh for my my mom, uh the younger brother, four years younger than myself and and me. So there was there was uh the three of us that got the the bad end of, of that abuse. Uh he left, fortunately, when I was 10. And that was a time of uh it was happy for me. It was tough for my mom because she ended up raising two boys as a single mom in the 1950s. And that was that was difficult. Uh the I think you know, I will always be healing from the issues because so much of the way we are taught to think of ourselves uh, happens in the first seven years of our lives. It happens in our mother's womb uh, is the epigenetic impact of what our mother is experiencing, the chemicals of stress or fear that she produces course through our bodies in our mother's womb. And that pre-programs us uh, at the time of birth. And then the first seven years we are deeply influenced. We're in what's called a hypnagogic state. We're not even fully conscious. And that uh, that influences the way that we learn to, to respond to life. And I, I was blessed, uh, and there's a whole story about why and how, but I, I was very blessed to have what I, I would call a strong soul compass. And what I mean by that is, fortunately, I did not believe all of the criticism. I didn't believe the uh, the negativity that my my father was was dishing out in the family, my mom and my brother did believe it, and I, I watched their lives change before my very eyes. But to to answer your question more concisely, I, I think what it taught me, Celine, is that we always hear that we're a product of our past and we're the product of our upbringing, and I, I think there is a degree of truth to that, and I also learned that it is a choice for us to be defined by our past. It is a choice for us to stay in the box uh, of whatever our family or our society or our own inner talk uh, has chosen to, to use to describe us. Uh, and it's not a right, wrong, good or bad. My younger brother, it's four years younger, exactly the same family. We are night and day. If, if he was on this broadcast, you wouldn't recognize him. We look different. We think different. We talk different. And, uh, and he chose to believe and has chosen to live his life within the limitations uh, that he experienced during the trauma in our uh, abusive family. And the the result of that for him is that everything that goes wrong in his life is someone else's fault. So it's the world against him. It's his coworkers or his friends or his former partners or, you know, mm -hmm. or me. 
you know, whatever that is. I, I love my brother and he loves me. We just look at the world very differently. So I, I realized early on that it is a choice uh, as to whether or not we're defined by our past. And, um, and it is a choice as to who we choose as a role model. And when there is no single father in the home, for some people that can be difficult, mm -hmm. I was very creative. And what I did is I looked at the world around me and I looked at men and women that I admired and I selected qualities from those people and I wove them into an imaginary role model that really helped me through very difficult times in, in the 1950s and 1960s. It was a different world. It was a very, very different world. You know, when I was a kid growing up, the idea of resilience was if you have a tough day, suck it up and get over it. That literally, that was resilience. Sure. Yeah. And and now yeah. we know that, that was a model of masculinity, wasn't it? But yeah. It, well, it was and women as well. Uh, we ended up living when my father left. We were very poor. We lived in government subsidized housing, low income housing with a lot of other families in similar situations, single single mother, typically, single parent families, typically the mother, unsupervised kids. And it was both men and women. The, the girls I knew had to be tough. They had to be tough and they had to learn a, a different kind of resilience, certainly than what we, what we know today. Now we know that, uh, that resilience covers a number of domains. It's not just mental, but we have psychological resilience and physiological resilience and emotional resilience and spiritual resilience. I talk about these in my, my books and my workshops. Yeah. And each of those, each of those domains plays a powerful role in, in our lives. Uh, but which so one do you I, think is the most critical, Greg? Well, I think, I think, I, I think they're all important. But yep. the physiological resilience, if we don't have a body, nothing else is going to make any difference. So the, the physiological resilience and the, the new discoveries of the 40, uh, I'm hesitating because I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but 1991, scientists discovered 40,000 specialized neurons in the human heart. They're like brain cells, but they're not in the brain. They're in the heart and they think and they feel and they remember and interpret life independently of the cranial brain. So that means when we have trauma, which we, we all have our own unique trauma, your, your trauma may not be my trauma. I could look at your life and say, you know, what's the big deal? Or you could look at my life and say, Greg, you know, uh, what, what's the big deal? But it's the way that we interpret our life experience through the filters of our emotions and our mental capacity and, and all of those things. But the interesting thing is that our perceptions are converted into chemicals in our bodies. Every emotion that we have produces a chemical called a neuropeptide in the human mm -hmm. body. And the goal of that neuropeptide is to metabolize. The neuropeptides want to move through the body and be excreted as tears or perspiration, you know, body fluids, uh, breath, things like that. When we have joyous experiences, there's no problem metabolizing those neuropeptides. But it's the trauma. If we do not have the tools to process our trauma in a healthy way, the body will store those chemicals. Uh, in the organs typically associated with the trauma, which that opens the door to a big conversation about illness and disease.
But even today, uh, I am still in the process of healing that trauma because it it happens in layers. Uh, so yeah. early in my life, the, the the kinds of counseling that were available were more talk therapy, and it helped. It it was incomplete, and I think we all know that often we will have talk therapy, but something doesn't feel like it's it's quite resolved yet. And and now we know why, because if we don't address the memories in the heart that are independent of the memory in the brain, if we don't address those memories in the heart, then oh, often so that's are they they're different. The memories they are, they the are different because and, okay. and those neuropeptides uh, mm-hmm. that linger in the body you know in a neuropeptide doesn't have a shelf life so the neuropeptide of uh of criticism and being told that you won't accomplish anything or that you aren't worthy that kind of criticism creates a chemical in the body and it will attach to parts of the body that we associate with our our value and with our worth those chemicals can be there for a week they can be there for 70 years in my case so and and as we learn to uh to communicate with our heart with the neural network in our heart as well as our mind and our memories because once again the neural network in the heart it thinks feels and remembers independently of the cranial brain it it, it uses a different language it's not a verbal language we all know that so uh, so, uh, if you ask what I think is the most important, I think we, it's not about so much importance, but I think in terms of of priority, our physiological resilience. Uh, w- once we begin there, it lays the foundation and it opens the door to the healing of the emotional resilience by releasing those neuropeptides as we find physiological resilience, we open the door to the mental and the spiritual and the emotional and the psychological resilience. I just uh, want to say, I, I don't, I won't talk a lot about products or anything, but yeah. I, I have a, a course that's called Radical Resilience that addresses okay. each of these. If people are interested, I don't want to just throw this out and leave people, have sure, people say, I'll, you know, where, where do I find more information? In the description. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important because the whole world is going through trauma right now mm-hmm. we are all experiencing yeah. loss and and for some of us that loss is the loss of loved ones and friends certainly during uh, the pandemic but but even if we were fortunate enough to have not lost people we all have lost freedoms we all have lost a way of life the world mm-hmm. has changed and we've never been given the opportunity Celine to mourn the the loss uh and that we're all experiencing and resilience Physiological resilience helps us to do that by releasing those neuropeptides that we link to that loss. So we could we could say a lot more about that, but I know there are other things you, you'd like to address, so I'll stop there. Yeah. You also talk about the potency of words in your your recent book, The Wisdom Codes, and you say it is an effective way to heal our hearts and actually re- recalibrate our minds. So can you tell us more about this? Because you actually mentioned that it was intuitively understood by ancestors who encoded those words in chants, sure. hymns, prayers, and sacred writings. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. So this is the 40th year that I have done this work in, in one form or another. And in those 40 years, I've been blessed 
to have the opportunity to to travel into some of the most isolated and remote and magnificent and beautiful and pristine places remaining on the earth today, usually in the high high mountain villages or remote deserts, uh, to understand the wisdom of our ancestors. What did they know that we have forgotten? And what did they know maybe that we're only beginning to understand? And, and surprisingly to me, while I thought that I was looking for physical remnants, archaeological remnants of temples and, and texts, what happened was I began interacting and spending a lot of time with the people that now live in these sites. So the monks and the nuns in Tibet and the sadhus in Nepal and the Kurandaros. Uh, yeah, the in Bedouins the, in, the, in the, Egypt, The Bedouins, right? the Kur, mm-hmm. Kurandaros in the Yucatan. Yeah. What I found is different as these traditions were or, or are from, from one another is there's a common theme. And that common theme is that these ancient and indigenous traditions have always turned to words to help them in times of need, in times of loss, or when they felt they needed strength or or power, or they needed uh, uh, protection when they were dealing with fear. And each tradition has always had a, a word or a phrase or specific words that have been preserved as mantras, as uh, prayers, as hymns in the Christian traditions, as chants. Uh, And I began collecting these in my travels. And uh, I talked to my publisher one day, and they asked me to collate these. And uh, I should have called the Wisdom Codes book one, because I had to to select from so many that, that I've been exposed to. But what I did was I, I wanted to to draw from the Vedas, from the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian text, from uh, indigenous Native American text, Buddhist texts, uh, as as many as I could, and categorize them uh, according to need, according to things like protection and, and fear and uh, and loss and things like that. So so our ancestors understood that there were words and phrases that had an impact upon their bodies that help them in times of need. They may not have understood why that is so. Now the modern science is is showing us, and I know our our community is very familiar with the term neuroplasticity. It's showing us that our neural networks are not fixed. They are soft. They are malleable. And they are constantly shifting, both in the brain where we typically think of neural networks, but also in the heart now, because we know we have a neural network in the heart and the words that we use to describe ourselves and our relationship to our bodies, to one another, to the world around us, to our suffering, to our joy, to God, to the cosmos, those words actually trigger a biological uh, imperative. They set into motion a biological process where neurons will begin to search for other neurons. They're very social cells. Mm-hmm. They begin to search for other neurons uh, to, to hook up with these neurons to create the neural networks to support the language that we are using. So okay. when we are are using language that is empowering, 
uh, that is a very healing process for the human body. So the neural neural networks will build to reflect our empowering words, and those neural networks will actually begin to trigger the life-affirming chemistry in the body. They'll begin to strengthen the immune system. They'll begin to release longevity enzymes. They begin to create resilience to the change in the world around us through the language that we are using to describe and define our relationship to that world. So words are important. Words matter. Words matter. Yeah, yeah. And it's and so the book was a collection of, of those things mm-hmm. and, and those relationships. And, uh, and it works both to the positive and to the negative. So this is why when we come from a family of trauma, if we and um, you know just really un- unhealthy unhealthy forms of relationships, parental relationships, and, and things like that, this is why it is important for us. Number one, to know yes, that is our history, but it does not need to define our future. We have the choice to recognize and to love and bless the past that we've come from, the family that we've come from. I I wouldn't change my family because I learned, I I probably would not have learned about myself if everything had been given to me. Mm -hmm. As it it turned out, we we were financially, we were a wreck. Uh, I had to, to, in high school, I was working in a copper factory at night, uh, making money for the Mm -hmm. family. So, and going to high school during the day, I didn't get to participate in, you know, sports and things like that when I was a kid, like a lot of others do. I, I did it later in life, but I didn't when I was in high school. So, but but those kinds of experiences create the lens through which we learn to see ourselves and our relationship to the world. And we get to define that lens. That's what's so cool. It's yeah. really sweet. We get to define the lens through which we view our relationship to the world. And you know, the, the new science supports this so beautifully. When I was in school, I was taught that we are the product of Darwin's idea of evolution, yeah. that we, we are the product of a long, slow, gradual process of what is mm-hmm. called random, random biology or, or, yeah. or lucky, lucky biology. Mm-hmm. The best science of the modern world tells us now that that's not true. That, yeah. And I, I want to be very clear about this. I'm a degree geologist. I believe in evolution. It's a fact. And I've I've seen it in the fossil record for plants and insects and animals. However, that theory breaks down when it comes to humans in, in the following manner. Scientists agree that we modern, we're called anatomically modern humans is the name they, they give for us that we showed up on earth 200,000 years ago, scientists are are pretty much in agreement with that date. The mystery is, where did we come from? New technology now, DNA technology. This sounds like science fiction. DNA technology, it allows us to go into the fossilized remains of ancient forms of life and extract the DNA from those fossils so that we can look at the genome of those ancient forms of life, including the beings that are supposed to be our ancestors. Now that we've done that, what we know is we have built the genome for Neanderthal, for example, and compared it to ours. 
we did not descend from Neanderthal. We didn't come from them. Yep. We shared the earth with them. We were there yep. at, at the same time. Uh, they mm -hmm. say we probably interbred, probably had Neanderthal boyfriends and girlfriends. And, and that's why some <laughs> people to some people today, if so they were if different they from do, Homo sapiens is what you're saying. The Neanderthals. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, and they died out, they died out. Yep. But, it, but so what, what the DNA is showing and this, this opens the door to a big conversation is that when we showed up 200,000 years ago, our genome then compared to our genome today hasn't changed. We showed up with all of the qualities and the traits 200,000 years ago that give us the extraordinary potentials that we have today. We showed up with a brain 50% larger than any other primate. It happened, boom, just like that. We showed up with the ability to self-regulate our own biology in a way that no other form of life can have. And I just want to reiterate this. It means that we're not a victim of a world that we have no control over. The world out there does what the world does. How we respond to that world, we have absolute, the, the, the mechanisms, the wiring, we have absolute control in terms of how we respond, if we choose to embrace that control. This is epigenetics. So we have the ability to awaken deep states of intuition on demand, not mm -hmm. just when it happens, but when we need it the most. We have the ability to enhance our immune system on demand, to awaken the longevity enzymes. And if you're if you're dealing with longevity enzymes, it's not just about living longer. It means the only way you live longer is if you are healing along the way. So these are deep states of healing all the way down to the molecular and the genetic level. And we have the ability to self-regulate this. We have the ability to create greater resilience to change in our lives, to create super learning, super memory, super cognition, super recall. All of these that sound like science fiction and, and we see science fiction movies of people with superpowers, maybe those movies are us, consciousness, designing media to remind us of who we are and the potentials within us. That's a big conversation in, in the world right. of psychology right now. So, yeah. so all of this goes back to the, the beginning of the question, we're wired we are wired for adaptation. We're wired for resilience. We're wired for health, healing, joy, and extraordinary potentials. But the key is we've got to shift the way that we think and perceive of ourselves to embrace the deep truth of those potentials. And honestly, and, and just very frankly, we are young people. Are, are not being given any reason to think of themselves in those positive ways in traditional public education. It, it's not happening that way. Why? Because the model is outdated? Uh, because, because, you know, uh, I think there are probably multiple reasons, but the bottom line is when you, you talk to young people about who they, how they see themselves in the world, they see themselves as powerless victims of a world but they have no control over. And if you're a victim, it means you need a savior. And uh, the younger right. generations, their savior, they're being told the technology will save them and that they need something outside of their bodies to 
help them to be at their best so they can compete in business and compete and be successful in life. We're at a very powerful crossroad in our civilization now when technology is is at a point, and this includes artificial intelligence, this includes uh, computer chips implanted in the brain, all all of these things. Yeah, I heard... uh Elon Musk talked about that in one of his interviews, didn't he? Well, he he pioneered. Elon Musk pioneered a company called Neuralink. And the, that's right. Yeah. In, the, in the United States, U.S., the FDA, uh, Food and Drug Administration, has just approved Neuralink oh, wow. for human okay. use. Now, here, here's and this is a beautiful example. I'm a scientist. I'm a degreed earth scientist, but I have a strong background, math, physics, you know, computer science. So I can stay current with these new discoveries. The technology is never right, wrong, good or bad. Once we develop a capability, it's the thinking of society that determines how that technology will be used. So a computer chip in the brain for a man or a woman who has been in the battlefield of Afghanistan and lost arms and legs, for example, if that computer chip can communicate with artificial legs and arms and allow them to hold their child in their arms and to brush their own teeth and to feed themselves. Uh, what a beautiful thing. But that same, that same computer chip, if it is used recreationally for someone that doesn't need it, if, if society says every newborn will now have a computer chip implanted in, into the brain, which is being proposed in the United States right now, beginning in 2030. If if society accepts the recreational use, here's what the science shows us. When we replace our natural biology, these extraordinary abilities within us, when we replace them with synthetics, with AI, with computer chips, with sensors under the skin, Uh, chemicals in the blood, what happens is our body begins to atrophy those potentials. Our body begins to believe it no longer needs to produce those particular neurons or that particular immune response because it's being done artificially. Artificially, And then pretty soon, the next generation, that is an ability that's... This is how you lose a species. This is exactly how you lose a species. And we're at a very powerful crossroad, and there's a lot of heated debate about whether or not we will remain pure human biological beings, or if we will become a hybrid of some kind. Uh, Ray Kurzweil is the director of technology at Google, uh, a brilliant visionary. He's an author, science fiction author. He now has said that by the year 2035, which is not very far away, By the year 2035, there will be very few pure humans remaining, that we will have become a a species, a hybrid species, to some degree, where we accept these external technological devices at birth, Uh, whether it's a computer chip in the brain or chemicals in the blood or, you know, whatever it is. So... From my perspective, I'm I'm not saying it's right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm not saying do it or don't do it. What I'm saying is we are only beginning to understand the extraordinary potential of what it means to be human. And we're 
at the crossroads of where we are about to give our humanness away to the yeah. technology, my invitation is let's let's understand who we are and what we're giving away before we give give ourselves away to the technology. And it all comes back to the ability to self-regulate. And in my lifetime, the trauma of my early life is what opened the door to my understanding of that ability for myself. I could only speak for myself. But I knew that if it works for me, it can work for other people as well. So that I wanted to bring our conversation full circle. Right. And how do we begin to tap into that potential, Greg? You know, there are so many really good speakers, authors, scientists, self-help books, you know, that are out there. For me, I'll just say for me personally, the ability, now that we know, so I'll just state this uh, very concisely. We are the only form of life that we know of today, at least on this earth. I'm sure there are some others out there in the cosmos, but we're the only form of life on earth that has the ability to harmonize the neural network in the brain and the neural network in the heart. These are two organs, but we can harmonize those networks into one potent system. It is called heart-brain coherence. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a, a, a very fundamental frequency. A low, it's 0.1 hertz is the frequency that harmonizes the heart and the brain. When we immerse ourselves into a state of focus, our focus in the heart, uh, slow the breathing so that we trigger the relaxation response, the parasympathetic nervous system. And when we begin to feel the feeling of a positive life affirming feelings like care or gratitude, gratitude is pretty universal. It works for pretty much everyone. Those conditions and that feeling of gratitude begins to send a signal for a 0.1 hertz from the heart to the brain. Now, here's why this is important. When I was a kid in school, I was taught the brain is the master organ in the body. And we, you know, we've only got one brain. It's, it's obviously important. But here's what the discoveries are showing. The brain receives the bulk of the instructions that tell it what to do from the heart. It's the signal that the heart is sending to the brain that tells the brain what chemistry to release into the body. Now, this is where it gets really, really interesting, and this is where we have control. The signal in the heart is coming from the neurons, those 40,000 sensory neurites in the heart. Those neurons are responding to the way we feel about the world. Do we feel safe? Do we feel threatened? Do we feel a sense of well-being? Uh, do we feel that we are victims of powerless victims of a world that we have no control over? Do we feel that we are not worthy? Uh, do we feel, I mean, the whole concept of success and failure comes into this conversation. Because from my perspective, what I learned very early in life is we can only fail. If we, if we, embark upon a task, whatever that is. I used to, a job in a factory where I used to work in a factory or, you know, my classes in school or a relationship or, you know, a a physical routine, exercise, whatever it is. If we do 
absolutely the best that we can do, and we could not do any better. The only way that we fail is if we compare what we have achieved to something else. The question is, what do we use as our yardstick for comparison? What what do we gauge in society? Society conditions us to compare ourselves to fake, you know, people on magazine covers or yeah. people in movies or, or whatever it is. Social so media. What I, I, yeah, so, uh, social media and peer pressure is a big part yep. of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what I, I learned early on, and I was asked this in an interview once, and, and the interviewer, I think, wasn't happy with my answer. He said, what is the greatest failure of your life? And I said, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be very honest. I believe I've failed at nothing. Yep. Uh, because everything that I have said yes to, if I say yes, I'm in, and I'm in a million percent, whether it's a relationship, a marriage, uh, a, a health activity, you know, art, music, I'm a guitar player, you know, whatever it is. And if I'm in a million percent, I can't do any better. The only way I can fail is if I compare that to another relationship or another guitar player or another athlete or something like that. Now I'm, I have, uh, I have had experiences. I have multiple marriages and people say, well, does that mean your marriage failed? And I think it's all about the conversation that you have with your partner, what your life goals are. It not so much what happens, but it's how honest you can be to communicate with your partner about what is happening. And then from that honesty to determine a healthy course, uh, mm-hmm. coming from an unhealthy family, the last thing I want is to, to duplicate what, what I learned from my family. So all of that comes from the ability, uh, to self-regulate, but it begins with the honest assessment. Have I actually done the very best that I can do? Given the same circumstances, would I do the same thing again or would I do it differently? But the the whole idea of of failure has been used to leverage fear uh, in religion uh, and worthiness in religion, in society, in business, in social media, young people. Unfortunately, I just saw a statistic. The suicide rates of young people in the United States of America are higher than they've ever been. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yep. And they attribute much of it to peer pressure that is coming from social media platforms, uh, specifically TikTok, and was the one that, that they had mentioned because a lot of young people are using it. Yep. But uh and and peers making fun of or belittling other people, zeroing in on what what could be considered a uh, an anomaly or a defect. Maybe they weigh a little bit more. Maybe they have a birthmark. And to young people who are forming their self-identity, this can be devastating. Uh, and in the relentless, it's not just a one-off, relentless day after day after day of being belittled by your peers without having a strong soul compass. And this is why I think all this information is important. And this is where I think all of our our families can really step up yeah. to help our children. What advice ours... do you have for parents who have younger children? Because I'd imagine. Well, this is this is it. Yeah. This is it. Right yeah. right now, yeah. when we, I think it's our parent the parents' responsibility, and especially those first seven years, 
when the brain is developing and our view of ourself and our self-esteem is is developing during that time to instill within those the young girls and young boys uh just how precious they are in terms of life how uh how extraordinary they are in terms of a human and what our human potential is one of the first places that this is so easy to do is the best science now of the modern world is showing us that the fundamental rule of nature is cooperation. We've been taught to believe that it's competition, dog eat dog, that you've, yeah. you've got to, to fight tooth and nail to get whatever's coming to you in the world. And now we're looking at a world that's a consequence of, of that thinking. But can you imagine a young people, a young person who from an early age, believes that nature is their friend, uh, that cooperation and working with other classmates on the playground or in the classroom to solve problems and to communicate clearly, what what different world would it look like just from that one shift yeah, in thinking? And, and that's only that's only that's only one shift. And it's supported by by modern science. The best science of the modern world is telling us this. Nature's based on cooperation. And uh, and it opens the door to a whole new model of society and governance and uh, and relationships, and that, that's just the beginning. So maybe we call this uh, Selena uh, or Celine and Greg Part One. And yeah, and, uh, I know. Could- I mean, Greg, I I I could talk to you for hours, honestly, and I just want to be respectful of your time. So um, I think we we will end our conversation here. Thank you so much for being here with us and offering your wisdom and uh, inspirational message. I truly appreciate it. Well, Celine, thank you for your trust, because the truth is you didn't know what we would talk about today. It's unscripted. I want to thank right, you for yeah. being. Yeah, I want to thank you for being a hub of information and community, which is really important community for all the people you reach every day with the the beautiful messages of hope and possibility that we all need so very much. I'm honored to share a part of the day with you today and uh, I look forward to our next. Well, Greg, it's, it's leaders like you who inspire me to do that. So yeah. Well, we're a good team. We're a good team. All right. <laughs> all right. So I just want to let our listeners quickly know that if you want to learn more about Greg's books, products, events, and to access his vast library of resources, please visit his website, gregbraden.com. The link will be in the description. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.